and welcome to Captured on Celluloid. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And on this episode, our second episode of this new podcast, we are going to be focusing in on a movie that I'm hoping, if you're listening at this point, you'll have seen. If you haven't, we will talk for a little bit before going into spoilers. Um, but on a screen near you, I've got Uncle Gems. How you doing, Holly? How's it going? How's it going? Good. Good. Pesach, All right, Larry, you're a Jew again. Welcome back. I made a crazy risk to gamble. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest fucking bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. What is that? I started it. Are you serious? You're taking my money all over town, placing bets. I'm having very serious second thoughts. Are you serious right now? I know I fucked up. Howard, where's the money right now? Howard, got my money? Is it too late? I'm done. That means nothing. It meant nothing. Please. Give me another shot. You like to win, right? This is no different than that. Black Jewel Power, nigga. This is my fucking way. You think I'm stupid, Howard? You and your whole fucking family! I heard you resurface your fucking swimming pool. I, you know how that makes me feel. Never resurface you think your life is more anything. I don't know who said that. I told you about how things were going to go. You like the way things are going now? That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. You having a good time? Yes. This is me. This is how I win. JJ, it's game night. You should be stretching out. What is it, your coach? Nah, he's just a fucking crazy-ass Jew. I believe it is still kind of hanging around theaters stateside, like very few at this point, but there would be some in some major cities, right? Yeah, so even in, in my neck of the woods here in Durham, North Carolina, I was navigating the coming attractions for this weekend and notice that uncut gyms is still showing at my my local amc dine-in theater so it's it's still got some steam people are still going to see it yeah it's got staying power i mean it's it's coming up close to 50 million dollars uh, worldwide which is pretty big deal and a really ple- pleasant surprise for it if you haven't seen it yet um by the time you're listening to this, if you're living outside the US and possibly in the US, that rates to be seen, but certainly worldwide excluding the US, it's getting its its global release on Netflix. So it'll be available for all of you to watch on Netflix. And I don't know, it could be. Andrew thinks it is on Netflix on Friday. If it's not, it's definitely coming soon, was the impression I got. So if you haven't managed to get it in the theater, it will be there for you on Netflix. 
I saw on Facebook that it was going to be on Netflix. And Adam, as we know, everything on Facebook is unequivocally true. So let's just assume that it's true. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, you'll know whether or not I'm full of crap anyway. So anyway, go on. More importantly than whether that's true, at this point, people may be asking, okay, well, I haven't seen it. Why should I watch it? What would your answer to that question be? So last week, I think I described The Departed as what I imagined the feeling of doing cocaine would be. And this, the feeling of Uncut Gems is like injecting hot sauce directly into both of your eyeballs and then trying to run a marathon. It's an exhilarating and painful movie that keeps you on your ed- the edge of your seat from start to finish. There's some amazing performances. There's some amazing writing. And overall, it's just a thrill ride. Yeah, I, I think that certainly sums it up. There may be a kind of person that that doesn't appeal to, or maybe, you know, there are, you'd have to be in the right mood. For some people, certainly isn't the case for me. I could watch this movie anytime, but it is a lot. And if you are of a nervous disposition, it's probably best to be aware that, you know, this is about as anxiety inducing as movies get. I can't really think of many movies that have made me feel this way ever. Um, so that is certainly core to it. I mean, outside of that, it's one of the best thrillers. I guess it is a thriller in a not necessarily conventional thriller way. It's one of the best comedies at times of the year. And I mean, beyond all of that, it's a movie that if you're into sports, for example, it's really grounded in that world with a kind of knowledge and attention to detail that you don't often see on film. I think it's something we're going to talk about a lot with so many different elements of this movie. Um, but the Safties are really, really committed to making films that feel authentic, like both goes to their casting, how they how they write their stories, and then how they actually capture them. And there are so many different elements of this movie that are very, very much true to life that if you are, let's say, familiar with the Diamond District in New York, or if you're into the NBA, or if you're into betting on sports, that there is something here that you'll be like, hmm, this is portraying these things in a way that I haven't actually seen before with more care and really just a more kind of exacting nature than you usually see. And that's interesting in its own right, because as you so rightly kind of sums it up, this is one of the most frantic movie experiences you'll ever see. It's com- it's just completely chaotic and yet when you stop to think about it and when you start to appreciate so many of the details, it is really a work of complete and utter control. Um, it's kind of fastidious nature of how this film would have to be made for all of this to work the way it does just can't quite be overstated. Um, so a really, really impressive work. We're going to get into a few different things before we get into talking about the movie in detail. And we will put up a spoiler warning at that point. This movie is a movie that certainly can get spoiled. And uh, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone watching. But we'll talk about some of, I guess, the main storylines around the movie before we get to that. When did this movie come on your radar, Andrew? I'm curious. This is a movie that I, I have been eagerly awaiting for a long, long time. 
Um, but I'm sure there's even people who are quite into movies like you are who may not have known about it until much closer to its release, certainly until kind of early uh, screenings for critics and the first wave of Buzz came out. For sure. I think it's might might have stated this last week or not, but in the last, I guess, two years since we ended our first podcast, I had been less vigilant about staying on top of, of movies and new releases, so I was less knowledgeable about what I should be expecting. So I think when this came into my radar, I actually think it might have been a situation where, you know, the ringer does some of their uh, videos where a few different staff members and Bill Simmons will watch a trailer and then Mm -hmm. react to it. And so I think that's when it came on my radar because of obviously Bill Simmons is the, the sports guy. He wrote the, the book of basketball. He's an NBA obsessive. So they did that one specifically because it looked like it was a movie geared directly towards people that are obsessed with the NBA and gambling. So that's when it came on my radar. And then obviously you see Adam Sandler in a dramatic role. You see Kevin Garnett getting more than just a cameo in a movie. That's, that's going to pique your interest. So that's when I first became aware of it, but not until it started getting some more, uh, awards buzz and critical acclaim did it really become something that i felt like i needed to see yeah there's like there's a lot of people um who have kind of claimed this is a movie for them and i want to stake my claim above all of them this is this is a movie for me and this is a movie that i've been waiting for for a long long time um I would say my favorite movie of the last 20 years is Punch Drunk Love. So when Adam Sandler teams up with some really smart and innovative filmmakers, you've instantly got my attention. Um, I just recently completed a master's thesis on the films of A24, which meant I was very much like very much in the know on every kind of nugget that was out there on this movie from well before first trailer released in, I guess, October-ish. And then being the NBA fan I am and someone who day-to-day kind of works with NBA-related stuff, I remember hearing of this movie and it kind of sticking me going back to when Amari Stoudemire was in the Kevin Garnett part and then when Joel Embiid was supposed to be in the Kevin Garnett role, which, I mean, is about probably, that's maybe three years um, of different variations of it. Um, when Good Time, the Safety Brothers' previous film came out, they were pretty forthcoming at times about you know what they wanted to do next what their dream project was and how they hoped to channel the success of good time into making that and that was uncut gems um and i guess the part i haven't mentioned there is sports betting which andrew i do like a bet so i was (laughs) i was all in and able to relate to every element of this outside of maybe the Jewishness and the Diamond District. So maybe there's like, there's some sort of Jewish jeweler who has claims in all of those other areas too, who has me beat. But I think I've got a, I've got a good claim over a lot of people. And the thing I found with that is, it'll become very apparent if it's not already. I mean, I love this movie. I completely and utterly adore this movie. I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be that because my expectations would have been very high. And also I felt like it was the kind of movie that I may have ended up looking at a little bit more critically than other people. Um, Certainly it's something we can speak to and you as a big sports fan too. 
often when there's any kind of sports, even if it's just kind of a tread of a sports team in a movie, which is somewhat what you get in, in Uncut Gems, it's not really done justice in a way that any actual sports fan is going to say, oh yeah, that seems real or that seems authentic. That's not the case here. Um, so in its own right, that's kind of very impressive in making the whole thing work together. I agree because when you set out to make something that can appeal to several different types of people, oftentimes it ends up appealing to no one because you're you're shortchanged in some area. For example, this movie could have gotten knocked off course if the gambling lingo and or language and the way that sort of the flow of that sort of conversation has between someone betting and their bookie. Uh, if that's just off a little bit, then the gambling obsessives are going to be out on it. Uh, less likely would probably be something like the people familiar with the Diamond District, but still, they get the little nuances of each of the little worlds that the the main character is exploring exactly spot on, and that's how you have this, you know, the whole package really shines through and all the little elements add up to something pretty amazing. So to give a very brief uh overview of what the movie is about and this is not my favorite thing is ever to give plot synopses so just very briefly it centers around a character played by adam sandler um called howard ratner um he is a jeweler he he owns a shop in new york's diamond district and he is a gambling addict and the film is basically just dropping you in to his world and the frantic nature of it about 85% of the movie is just directly following him, often with the camera directly mirroring his movements. Um, the shot's designed to really kind of put you in his state of mind at that time. So while the film is taking place, he is in the process of having his marriage come to an end. Um, he is in a relationship with another woman. Both of those things bring a whole lot of complications into it. Uh, he is someone who has already accrued major gambling debts before the film starts and is under pressure to pay them back. And basically, he's about to he's about to pull off the deal in his business that could be the deal of a lifetime for him. He is set about acquiring a black opal from Ethiopia, and the film really picks up just before the opal arrives. To him, this is going to be the answer to all of his hopes and dreams it's going to get him out of some uh sticky situations and likely with the way his character is get him into plenty more with the money he thinks he's going to make from it so that to me seems like the general setup for this movie and even that doesn't quite paint the picture of like the conflict on all sides nature of it and just how many people are constantly on his case and constantly demanding this or demanding that and i don't mean to frame that in a way that seems like you know poor howard ratner because really he's living a very selfish and self-absorbed life um he he is a gambling addict and he is certainly controlled by that and there are a lot of people who rightfully want their money back or rightfully want him to treat them better and that all adds to various just really really interesting and energetic dynamics throughout the movie the one thing I really kind of admire about this movie, there just there isn't one character in the film that's just flat, or that doesn't doesn't have a real motivation or meaning to be there, or or that doesn't feel real or lived in either. 
I mean, with all of these different story strands, a lesser film and still possibly a really good film may not serve them all in quite the way that Uncut Gems manages to do. But whether it's his mistress, Julia, whether it's his wife, Dina, whether it's their children, um, Damani, the, the guy who brings clients to his jeweler store, whether it's Kevin Garnett when he comes in looking to buy uh, the gem, whether it's Eric Bogosian's character, Arno, who is trying to take back the money that he's owed. All of these people, they get to have very kind of real relationships with Howard to the point where it makes sense. And it's important, I think, in dropping us in a story that does become quite as uh, frantic and frenetic as this one does, that it grounds him as a real character where we can really buy into what's happened before the camera started rolling and what happens, well... I'll say after the camera finishes rolling um, is something we can imagine and we can get into that later on. Do you get what I'm saying with that though? Do you, do you feel the same way? There is something about the kind of the detail to how the supporting characters mesh within the story. I'm not even talking about performances at this point yet, but just in terms of how it's constructed that all of these little interactions pay off and um, that the guys who come up to him on the street you know, who lead to some of the most memorable and funny moments of the movie. Like, all of these details, they're plotted really well, and they pay off, and it feels like something real, which then makes the cumulative effect of all these things piling on really kind of bring out the tension in the, in the audience. Absolutely. I think in a lot of narrative structures, we catch someone at at the top of the mountain, and we watch their descent, and then we learn about that the character's in their life as the movie progresses and they go on that descent. But we're catching Howard in the middle of his descent and he's either going to land with a thud or he's going to (laughs) bounce. And that's where we catch him. And through his even initial interactions with the side characters that are in his orbit, based on the clear strain on many of those relationships or just how he interacts with them, we can see the impact that his lifestyle has had on them. And like you said, that's a testament to the casting and how real the characters feel and that they've been placed in a spot where we feel like we know so much about them and how they relate to Howard even before we truly get to know them. Yeah, and it's also something that it evolves as the movie goes on and really as the movie goes on as he kind of spirals further and further into this crisis caused by his gambling. So the more and more the addiction takes over for him, we see the interactions change. Um kind of really nicely and really subtly in particular with his children um, where he is at the start as a parent and how he's clearly thinking about his kids and proactively say reaching out to them uh, for example he gets Kevin Garnett's ring and the first thing he does is to you know FaceTime his son and be like look I've got Kevin Garnett's ring to a crucial scene later in the film we'll talk about where he kind of can't look his son in the eye and He's not really telling him anything anymore, and it's clear that everything has just broken down around him. We have those kind of moments throughout with all of those characters where not only are they coming in and having their one or two moments, but they're managing to get kind of scenes with Howard at different points on his arc, which allows those relationships to progress and feel real. I think that's the crucial point. There aren't characters in this movie that essentially just come in right at the beginning and then are never really seen again. There's, there is no one of substance in the movie that has any real kind of weight in what's to come where that's the case for all of them. And there are quite a few characters 
um, who play prominent roles, you're feeling the whole way along. You're getting to see them interact in a way that doesn't feel overly constructed, in a way that doesn't feel artificial, in a way that doesn't feel like, let's get them back with this character so that we get to that point. Just the way that this story is told manages to do it somewhat organically. The big, the big, big topic of conversation, and you already kind of alluded to it, I already kind of alluded to it, and why I was so excited about this movie, um, is the thing that happens every now and then, and it's as Adam Sandler does a drama, he does a serious movie, and everyone gets really excited about it. And it's it's kind of a double-edged sword in some respect, because part of that is Adam Sandler is an incredible actor, Um <laughs> And he is really, really good when he tends to get the right material and the right directors. It's kind of a, wow, this guy is just about as good as any actor out there working. And the other part of that is a lot of the narrative around it becomes like, oh, Adam Sandler can act. Even though it's happening over and over again, even though we keep doing this, or why doesn't he do this more often? Why are we not getting more of this Adam Sandler and more of, and less of, I guess, the Netflix making movies with friends, Adam Sandler. As an actor, I don't know if there are many figures that fascinate me more than Adam Sandler um, because of the choices he makes, because of the arc of his career, and in large part because of just his general persona and what he seems to be like as a guy, which is really normal, really down to earth, and really just focused on his friends, family, having fun and doing the kind of things he wants to do. Um, and what that is from one moment to the next that determines you know what the movies he's doing are and like that seems very simple and yet it doesn't seem like something that's totally aligned with anyone else maybe it's a byproduct of the success he had with his comedies um, in the 90s something like I guess Happy Gilmore or The Waterboy or Big Daddy those kind of movies I guess, give him the freedom to just enjoy his life and make movies the way he wants. But part of the thing with Sandler compared to other actors is there isn't this feel that he's just relentlessly looking for the next, you know, career move. Or it's like, this is my serious movie to win an Oscar. He'll happily take the Oscars he made clear when he was campaigning for a nomination he unfortunately didn't get. But it's it's always a case of he's doing the movie because he wants to do it. And to me, that brings out something interesting in him as a person. To you, when you get this, so now, even recent years, I mean, it used to be something we'd go back to Punch Drunk Love, but we're only two and a half years removed from him doing the Myrovitz stories with Noah Baumbach. So when you hear Adam Sandler's going to do this, obviously you're excited, you said to that. But is that excitement based on, we'll see what this is? This is like him stepping out of his comfort zone, or at this point, are you in a place where you feel like, I know what he is and that interests me for this kind of movie? For me, it's that I know he wouldn't be doing something like this if it wasn't going to be good. When I see Adam Sandler in a serious role, I know he's going to bring his A-game. Now, I will say that, uh, for lack of a better term, I think Adam, and I, I mean this is more of an insult to me than I do to you, I have an ability to appreciate stupidity more than you do uh and that you know maybe in my own internal flaw so the the classic sandler movies the billy madison's the happy gilmore i'm able to appreciate them for what they were at the time 
growing up with them. I I see we're we're of a similar age, so I have I have that too of his movies being kind of formative in terms of you know the the age that we were. Kind of you get to a certain age, and it's like if you're gonna watch a movie with your friends. I remember that being Big Daddy, or I remember that being Little Nicky, or The Water Boy, or Happy Gilmore. So I, I have that too. I'm not saying that I liked all of those films at that time, or I like all of them now. I certainly like Happy Gilmore, and I like Big Daddy. I think they're just two really good movies. Um, the Water Boy has its has its pros and cons. It's a it's a yeah, it's positive. It's a good movie overall, um, but. Comedy is generally something I struggle with more. I love a good comedy, but I find it very difficult to find them. And I think that's in part because they're very difficult to make. And Adam Sandler's career, a lot of it may be a testament to that. At the very least, his his best movies from his comedic prime produced good one-liners that could be shared at the lunch table for immature high school boys that you know we were at one point in our lives, I'm sure. At least I was. That being said... I think if you look at his filmography, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry on in a comedic sense is where he starts to struggle and he earns the reputation that some people uh, label him with even when he's making a serious movie. I think sometimes, I don't know if it's the media or in this case specifically Academy voters, they hold his recent catalog against him. And it's almost like, well, Adam Sandler can't win an Oscar because he's Adam Sandler. That's something that I don't think is really fair. I don't care if you make 10 terrible comedies in a row. If you come back with the performance that he's bringing in Uncut Gems, you shouldn't hold those past performances against him. So I think he's been a little unfairly labeled or just criticized because of the bad movies he's made when that shouldn't apply to films like Punch Drunk Love or uncut gems or marvitz like you um read. sure uh, but i mean it, it it doesn't apply to those movies but i think the the interesting thing and the, and the thing with sandler that i've tried to recognize as it goes on is um let's say let's say something like sandy wexler one of his more recent netflix movies if not the most recent feature he had on netflix um no actually i know the most recent feature because i watched it and i was like this is okay, but not great. You really do watch everything. Not... <laughs> I watch most things. His most recent movie on Netflix was Murder Mystery, which also starred Jennifer Aniston. So around March of last year. And that is actually, I, I think, as they go, that is pretty uh, widely agreed to be a good one. You know, it's it's not kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel. It has its charms. But... Even with that, I was like, this is fine. It's just not really my thing. And then Netflix released their like most watched stuff of the year. And that was number one, I believe. It's certainly in movies. I think it may have been number one. And there is a reason why Netflix are giving him incredible amounts of money to make those kinds of movies over and over again. And sure, maybe he's not pleasing you know the kind of guys who do a movie podcast like us but there is a vast army of people who they just love adam sandler and they will watch him in anything and i mean the fact that i watched murder mystery probably speaks to me being open to trying to be that person because there's not many other actors who could go and make those kind of movies where i'd be like i want to 
I want to see that. I want to see what it's like. But that's something that's interesting to me is I think he's someone who it feels like just the wider movie going audience will give him the benefit of the doubt, unlike anyone else. And also just that people see his face and they're like, oh, I like this guy. This guy makes me feel good. I'm going to sit down and watch it. And it may be less about, you know, just how good is this particular movie as it is, oh, there's my old friend, Adam Sandler, and it's kind of what he represents as a star. I think that's that's part of the kind of mystique that has grown with him. I I really don't know if for a really large audience, and we've already spoken to, we, we're part of it. There are There are people who will have seen those movies we referenced at the same age as we did who just continued that that was what they loved was Adam Sandler movies. Like, there is there is something there that I think it can easily be dismissed. It can be dismissed by people like us and much more uh, readily dismissed and I guess flippantly dismissed by the Academy or by critics. And yet there is just something that works. And I think that is really interesting. The fact that he has that kind of appeal, the fact that people come back for more and more says something about him as a performer and what he offers, regardless of what the type of movie is. And it could be from his standpoint, you know, I obviously don't know him, so I don't know how he feels, but he could feel a sense of responsibility to the masses of people that do enjoy those types of movies. So for the most part, he's making movies for them. And then when something comes across his desk, that's as appealing as uncut gems after several tries, apparently, then he'll make that. And it almost can make the people like you and me appreciate those rare performances even more because they are so few and far between. What is it that you think then makes him a good fit when he does get these kind of roles? So when Noah Baumbach turns to him, or the Safdies turn to him, or Paul Thomas Anderson did way back for Punch Drunk Love. Funny People is another movie that's frequently kind of put in this conversation. Um, what What is it that when he does have to do a little bit more, what is the quality that you think allows him to do that and allows him to step beyond the persona that we all know and associate him with? There's kind of a dark humor, sappiness, man-child thing that he can bring to the table so that even if, in this case, Uncut Gems, if he's playing somebody that, as the movie develops and develops, we can kind of see he's kind of a sleazebag. He he may be well-meaning in some ways, but he's really just in it for himself. But he still brings an everyman likability to him so that as the movie goes on and he keeps doing more questionable and even sometimes despicable things, the audience is still invested in his arc. And there's something about him that really brings that to the table. And there's, in, in roles like this, there's almost a quietness to to the performance he's bringing because mm-hmm. in some of these you know broader comedies like Billy Madison, he's he's really chewing on the scenery and going for it and very bombastic. But in especially something like Meyerowitz or or this in some places, there's a a quiet calm amongst all the chaos, and you know it's just something. That I quite, can't quite put my finger on, but it's really appealing to watch. Yeah, I think you've hit, you've hit the kind of the key points that I was going to come with, and there's one element I guess will expand that. I think Manchild, I think, is the the label that is often brought out, and that certainly dates back to his early comedy work. Um, I I think it could be described as something a little bit more flattering, though, a boyishness. And I think when he when he 
pivots to a role where you know he's he's doing a little bit more or the the audience needs to invest or empathize with his character at a deeper level that's really where it should kind of probably be categorized it, it becomes this kind of boyishness the quiet element i'm glad you i'm glad you brought that up if if we were kind of assigning a band if we were, if we this is an exercise that you'd probably love to do a full podcast on at some point if we were assigning a band or a musician for various actors of you know who did they mesh up with who's reflective of this adam sandler is pixies because it's the loud quiet loud dynamic that is spot on i love that so much it's what he does it's what he does so so well and it really struck me in not just i don't cut gems and as i mentioned earlier i mean i know punch drunk love inside out it's one of my all-time favorite movies um but i rewatched marowitz for this podcast i watched uh, funny people for the first time i hadn't seen funny people before and the same thing is there in both of those performances and i mean interestingly he hits I mean, exactly the same notes. And we'll get on to, I guess, how the Safdies use him in Uncle Gems in a minute. But there is certainly something there. They are students of Sandler. They have been unabashed um, in sharing their love for a lot of his comedies and just for him as a persona and him as a stand-up going back to before he was even the movie star he became. And they clearly know how to use him, which is interesting in this movie. But you get these moments and when he brings his voice all the way down. Something struck me on doing my rewatch of Uncle Gems for this. And there's a few scenes where it really comes into play. I can think of when when the Opal first arrives and he's in, the, in his shop and Kevin Garnett is looking at the Opal and he brings up his phone and he's like, have you ever, do you know anything about Ethiopian Jews? And he, he basically breaks into the full sales pitch of, you know, this is the story behind this opal, and this is how I got it. But he does this thing with his voice, where in the movie, not only does it, not only does it kind of give him this soft, gentle touch that is necessary for you to see in him for what comes later, but it also, it also convinces you that this guy is actually, you know, a competent salesman. That this guy could have a shop that is open and is functioning, where he kind of he breaks out into this kind of sing-song cadence that's really soft and gentle. Uh, I think the line he uses to, to Kevin Garnett is, you know, Garnett's a stone. You know that, a stone to a stone. And it's just, there's just kind of musical quality to the way he speaks. I gotta show you. I gotta something. leave soon, I know man. you have I gotta to get leave. Out Listen of to me. Okay, so I'm watching TV like uh, a year ago, all right? I'm watching one of those fucking History Channel shows, trying to learn shit. And I and I stumble. You ever hear African Jews? African Jews? Yeah. No. Right? No. Nigga, no. everybody out. to be a Jew. Check this out. I don't know. All right. So these are black Jews. All right. They're stranded in the middle of Ethiopia. It's deep shit. Stranded? Yeah. Look at. They got nothing. They don't got cars. They don't got shit. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, what the fuck are these guys wearing? Look, it's on the Torah there. It's everywhere, right? Just a fuck. Where do these fucking guys get? Precious black opals, that's what that is. The black opal. I do my research. These guys live near the whale mines, which primarily is red opals, which aren't worth shit, okay? Oh, okay. But these, these mm. yeah, you can't get your hands on these things, you understand? Really? So look, I say to myself, how do I get a hold of these guys? 
and I managed to track these guys down. I buy one from them. Holy shit! What is that? That's right here. That's the rock. That's the rock. That's the stone. Holy I got it. Look how this is winking. How the fuck you get man? this shit, man? It took me fucking 17 months to get this Holy thing, okay? Shit. Just look at this. Hang on for a second. Go through my loop. Be careful. That's my best loop. All right? I want you to look. Look at it. You really ain't right to Is that the shit? That's history right there. You understand? How many carrots is this? What? Four, five thousand carrots? Three thousand dollars a carrot? I'm not fucking bullshitting you. Why has it got so many colors in it, man? What is this? That's the thing. They say you can see the whole universe in Opal. That's how fucking old they are. Holy shit. I've been telling you. That's why I'm wanting you to see it. I gotta have it. Yo, that's crazy, man. Yeah, it's yeah, fucking from go. stone to stone. Garnet to stone, you know. I can, I can think of another couple of instances. Maybe I'll talk about a little bit later um, when we move past the spoiler point because they come later in the movie where he breaks this out. But there's something, and it, it really hit me while watching. There is an actor who is known for his incredibly distinctive voice, and it doesn't necessarily always work in his favor. But when Sandler goes low, he kind of captures something of a really kind of a gentle and soft Christopher Walken. There's there's something really kind of there's just this lilt to his voice um, that I find really, really interesting. And in these movies in Meyerowitz, it's certainly there a lot. I mean, it's there for 90 percent of Meyerowitz. And then the other part of that movie is him doing full on Waterboy. You know, or it's it's like loud and it's like physical comedy. It's like wrestling on wrestling on the lawn outside the college, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I just I'm really I'm really kind of drawn in by how he plays with those dynamics in a way that other actors don't. And he knows that what's his strength in comedy, I mean, he can bring to the table and he can also just kind of reverse it and say, well, this is drama. So I'm going to go really quiet and I'm going to. I'm going to kind of let, he has this vulnerability in his voice. His voice often kind of, you can hear it kind of slightly break or slightly quiver. Um, his eyes in this movie in particular, there's a lot of big close-ups of his eyes and they do a lot of the work. But to me, it's, you can see a performer who clearly understands how to bring out emotion. It may generally be laughs he's aiming for in his movies, but then he can kind of just, bring that across tweak it slightly and get something else when he when he does drama that to me is really really interesting but it is that it's it's his ability to bring it down lower and what happens with that and that is that seals the everyman quality when when he gets to his kind of most soft spoken it then makes you buy in and believe when he kind of lets loose and inevitably gets angry as he is always going to get it's really interesting because that's the least favorite aspect of my comedy that he has done in the past where he almost goes into like a baby talk sing songy voice like he used to do on snl and occasionally in in billy madison Mm -hmm. but it's almost like he's using that instrument for different purposes when it's a dramatic movie and it really crumbs across in a more effective way and is instead of being irritating it's just interesting to get to the the safety element of this and i mentioned they clearly just (laughs) They've been trying to make this movie for the best part of a decade. From day one, they envisioned Adam Sandler as playing this role. They tried on two occasions before eventually um, he saw Good Time, Love Good Time, and basically would return their calls, would read the script. So they had figured out you know, how this movie works for him and just what he is as a performer and clearly how to make that work. I think part of that is understanding the dynamics of it. Part of that is understanding when to 
when to kind of let him really go comedic. And I think it's also in... This film is written in a way that's interesting. And I've seen this in a way that a lot of people won't because it is going to be on Netflix. So um, even we're talking about it did well, it grossed $50 million worldwide. In the grander scheme of things, that's not going to be a drop of the ocean compared to what it's going to clock up both in the US when it hits Netflix and internationally when a lot of people essentially get their first chance to see it on Netflix. And there's this nature that they can draw on his previous performances. So, for example, a line that maybe people haven't even seen the film yet will have seen go around on social media has already become a meme from this film. Oh, this fucking guy! Right? You'll know the scene I'm talking about. You'll know the character that that comes from. I was watching Funny People in preparation for this, and his very first interaction with Seth Rogen's character, the character that is the crux of the film along with him, what does he say? He greets him with this fucking guy. Exact same tone, exact same cadence. Uh, then you have the scene in that movie where he's kind of, he's apologizing to Leslie Mann for past infidelities. And he does the thing that we've just talked about. He brings it down really low and he's kind of pleading and he kind of opens himself up. And in this movie, he has the exact same scene uh, with his wife, Dina, just the end result doesn't work out quite the same way. And that to me kind of, that just shows an understanding of when they came to write this script, how they could work with him, but also how they can balance the tone of this movie. Because watching this in a theater, as I was alluding to a second ago, that gives you one experience. You've seen this in the theater as well. I don't know if your your experience matches mine, but it was like an active audience and an audience that laughed quite a lot on the three occasions I've seen this in the theater. Was that similar for you? Maybe you saw a little later, so it might not be quite as full. It was still about a, a half full theater, and it was definitely an engaged and I want I don't want to say a loud audience, but there were there were reactions, so you could hear people experiencing the movie. There are moments when I watch this then at home where I went hmm that is hysterically funny and I think it's funny now but when there's no one laughing around me that line can play multiple different ways there's a crucial scene that to me is maybe the funniest scene it isn't maybe it is the funniest scene in the movie but it is essentially also Howard's low ebb you know his his full emotional breakdown and there are some things there that are overtly jokes, but I think even before the Safdies get there, they know that they're working with Sandler in a way that the audience recognizes him and they're going to laugh because it's Adam Sandler. And I think that's, maybe that's the kind of trick that brings down some of the other dramas he's done, some that haven't worked out. I think it's interesting. Um I mean, we could probably take funny people out of this because, look, Judd Apatow is flat out a comedic director, but no Baumbach, Paul Thomas Anderson, their films often have really strong comedic edges, certainly a sharp wit. And you can work with that with Adam Sandler and he works within that world. The Safties too, though, they do like to find ways for humor, but I know in this movie they've talked about they really tried to push that further and 
um, Scott Rudin, one of obviously the most successful and influential produ- producers in Hollywood who produced this movie. From, according to the Safdies, he kept pushing them. You need more jokes. We need more laughs, more laughs, more laughs. And I think that's really astute because where a movie with Sandler could fall down is if moments like that can't be seen as funny because there's a good chance the audience is going to laugh because they're used to laughing when they see him. And he kind of just has, there is something about his face. There's something about his emotions that they make you want to laugh. Um, (laughs) There are probably times where that is very inconvenient and you could do that in a movie and it could go wrong. But to me, that's the thing with the Safties. I feel like they know exactly what his tools are. They know, for example, his eyes, his eyes can tell a lot. There's five, six occasions in this movie where we get extreme close-ups on his eyes. Um, I think the first one maybe when he first kind of looks into the gem and he gets completely lost in it as such. Like they know the tools he has to work with, both with his voice, both with his comedic abilities, both with his kind of physical appearance and how you need to shape your movie around that as well. You you kind of can't tell the audience this movie is one thing and have Adam Sandler in it because they're gonna whether they even with the kind of the qualifier of oh no, this is a serious Adam Sandler movie they're going to expect laughs at some point. And I think that's a really difficult balance that they pretty much nailed in this case. It reminds me of a scene from Seinfeld where I think it's Kramer tells Jerry or George, someone tells Jerry that you're never really yell or angry. Your voice just rises to this comedic pitch. And that's almost what Adam Sandler does when he gets angry. So the scene, you know, where he's yelling at someone in a club or and having them chase him down the street and all the while just berating them, it, it really can be played for laughs despite it being a serious, dramatic, and, you know, should be angry moment in the movie. So it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. And there's also a physicality that he brings to this role because I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but he looks absolutely ridiculous. He's got the, the douchebag goatee down uh, perfectly. He's got earrings in. He's wearing a disgusting mustard yellow colored shirt at m- multiple points in the movie. So I love the he, shirt. Come on, you 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 can't you can't see yourself buying the shirt. The shirt is great. I mean, when they release the uncut gems line, I I will be buying a number of outfits. I don't know that if I'll pull them off uh, the way Sandler does and the way that he completely inhabits Howard Ratner. Yeah, there's all there's all of those really nice touches from his belt. Um. I think he's the glasses he wears are Cartier glasses. Um, yeah, it's quite a look he's got going on. The way they've customized the role completely to him, just not to cut across you, but the way they appeal to all those specific aspects of his ability, it, it makes it tough to imagine what this movie would have been like had they not finally landed him. You know, some movies you can talk yourself into, well, what if this person played this role or what if that person played this role? But for Howard Ratner specifically, just the way they've tailored it specifically to Sandler, it's impossible to imagine anyone else capturing it quite the way he did. You've given me a good seg and I'm going to take it because at this point, I'm going to put up the spoiler warning. Um, We are going to move into talking about casting will be one of the things we talk about. We'll probably go right into that now. But I think it's important to have a freedom to discuss some of the things that happen in the movie um, in that conversation. So if you haven't seen Uncut Gems, please... Don't continue listening. Stop now. Pause. You can come back to whenever you see it on Netflix uh, because we are going to get into a lot more detail in the movie and then specifically some spoilers. Um, So please pause. Come back again later. 
I want to I want to talk about we'll start with casting but I I guess generally the thing that just blows me away with this movie the thing that really kind of just makes it work on every level it's essential to making it work we we flagged up elements of it to begin with but it's just how they build this world and how they make all of this feel real and this is literally essential to the movie because it is centered around real NBA games so it's giving us a real period like this is this is not just a period piece we have defined, you know, they're using footage from real games, from a real playoff series. So people are able to pinpoint it. I believe from memory it's 2012, the 2012 playoffs, the games that really the all of the Kevin Garnett elements of this movie center around and then the key bets later in the film kind of come down to. And with that then, there's a lot of things you just you've got to get nailed on perfect and you've got to bring this world to life as real because you're telling the audiences that it's real. So you can't have uh, 47th Street, the Diamond Districts, be completely inauthentic to people who know that because you're using you're using real NBA footage. You're saying this is there's an element of kind of verite here. Um, you can't have an actor play the NBA player because you're again you need to use real games you can't have made up teams and pretend this is something you want to use real footage because you need to build it around it for the bets that really um, deliver the climax of the movie and beyond that if you want to make all of this feel real with the kind of environment that's created and with the story that's going on you need people who are believable in these roles and there's a pretty eclectic cast of characters in this movie and to do that the safties were pretty creative with how they went about casting it. We'll get into the specific people in the movie, some of them, and what we think of their performances, everything in just a second. But first of all, it's probably worthwhile for people who don't already know doing something of a kind of timeline of um, the alternate casting histories of Uncle Gems, because as movies go where this is kind of a consideration, this is one where we've got multiple different configurations that are really, really interesting. I think you know some of these. I don't know if you know all of them. Are you ready to kind of work through some of these and we'll we'll give our thoughts to just what that would have been? Absolutely. Let's do it. So the first iteration of this movie, according to the Safties, where it really got serious and they really thought about, okay, let's let's get to a point where we try to make this. The Howard Ratner character was a little bit older. I say the first iteration. This is really this is after Sandler turned down. So this is their first real attempt at getting someone to actually read it getting into real negotiations where this could become a thing so the Howard Ratner character a little bit older was going to be played by Harvey Keitel the Kevin Garnett character was going to be played by Amari Stoudemire very different movie right this is the thing to begin with with all of these different possibilities we're on trial these are all going to be really different movies which again just adds to I think just how impressive the feat of what the movie actually became is because they have had to really rework it for all of these things so many times. So things that would work with Amari Stoudemire, Amari Stoudemire is Jewish. Um, They are Knicks fans, the film in New York, obviously the diamond district, it probably opens up more possibilities for how you can 
work the story in and make it kind of logically work. He's regarded as a pretty eccentric guy as well, wasn't he? Right. Involved with the wine baths at one point. Yes. So you could he was. you could talk yourself into him being obsessed with the gym the way that Garnett was. I, I think that's a different movie. It's might still be a good movie, but I don't think it's to the level that we we ended up at. But that's it's, that's a really interesting alternate reality. Speaking to like the the eccentricities, I think one of the problems there, um, they tried twice with Amari Stoudemire, um, when they went through different iterations of of NBA players, and the second time it was really close, and they ultimately couldn't do it because they needed to use footage of him as a player from six seven years ago probably the time of shooting and his hair was kind of not quite shaved but we'll say cut pretty tight at that time where now he has a long mane of dreadlocks essentially and he refused he said oh yeah i'll do the movie but i'm I'm not cutting my hair which was obviously a problem when he was supposed to be you know going back and forth from games and all of a sudden he had short hair and all of a sudden he had long hair so that was that was one of the reasons why Amari Sotomayor ultimately could not be in this movie. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, what do you think of this? Um, the Wolf, right? Isn't he? He's in Pulp Fiction, right? Am I remembering that correctly? I'm, ima- yeah, I'm, you're I'm, right. ima- you're I'm imagining that character, but in Uncut Gems, and I'm not saying that it doesn't work, but. I just don't think I like it as much as Adam Sandler and aging, aging him up as well. I don't know if that brings the same gravity that we, we come to find with his, you know, family falling apart and that sort of thing and bouncing back between a world with his mistress and a world with his family. I don't think that works quite as well. If uh, the main character is a little bit in the later stages of their life. Yeah, I mean, we're mentioning at this point that the Safdie's father worked in the Diamond District, and this is really why this story has meant a lot to them for quite some time. They've always wanted to make a movie in that world. And as they tell it, with Harvey Keitel in it, it was, it was just going to be much closer to the truth of what the character who actually inspired Howard Ratner was, which was a co-worker of their father. And age-wise, that would have worked out. So when they considered this iteration of the movie after Sandler had turned down for a first time and they decided to age the character up, it then became, okay, well, this is actually much closer to the real individual we're thinking of and it would have adjusted that way. Um, But I I think like the key thing here, and as we go through some of these kind of what ifs too, you were talking about like the movie that we're discussing as a whole, the Kevin Garnett starring movie, it is entirely shaped around Kevin Garnett. And Howard's arc has to be reshaped around that, where it's Howard's story, but a lot of the themes of it have to come from, okay, well, who is this NBA player and what does it mean? And how does the gem become of significance for them? And where it ultimately lands with with KG, I mean, KG is famously superstitious. And in the movie that we actually see, I mean, it makes so much sense that Kevin Garnett would think this opal has magical powers and I need to keep it. And it's, it's what's going to help kind of get me over the line here. That makes perfect sense. I think the interesting thing is, you know, with Amari Sotomar, the you can clearly see how the Ethiopian Jews element, the black Jews element of this would have become something different. Um, if I move on to another 
potential uncut gems we could have seen. It's kind of tough linearly to be to to map them all up. Other than that, the reason we know Harvey Keitel and Mary Stoudemire were in at the same time is because the Safties did have a Passover dinner with the two of those people. Um, one that were trying to work through it, which I mean, why that's not a documentary, I, I don't was just know. Just saying, fly on the wall. I wish. Right. Other people who at different times potentially could have been Howard. Jonah Hill was briefly in this role, resulted in the opposite to Harvey Cotel. They had to age the character down, and then essentially he went off to direct uh, his directorial debut mid-90s, and that fell true. There is a certain... I think Jonah Hill has a Sandler-esque performance in him. There's a certain energy that he has, and I, I really like Jonah Hill as an actor. Again, a very different movie, and I don't know if it works in him being that young, because, well, look, it would just be so different that maybe we don't know, but where this particular version of it actually finished like the family elements of his life is so crucial to balancing out his whole story and who he is as a character that bringing jonah hill in that would make all of that very different i could see a more rough around the edges more competent donny azoff from the wolf of wall street kind of vibe if jonah hill's in that role i i could see that being something but again like you said just based on age of the character it's it's still not the same movie the version that seemed to be closest to actually getting made and um, so much so that there was a full read through with basically a full cast assembled in los angeles starred sasha baron cohen as howard ratner um the safties have given some of the details of this so we can kind of expand this out at that time julia was going to be played by riley keogh Dina was going to be played by Isla Fisher, so Sasha Baron Cohen and his real-life wife, um, which that dynamic could have actually been something interesting. I'm not sure about all of the elements of him as the character, but maybe it brings something different to those scenes. Damani was going to be played by John David Washington, which is also kind of interesting. Um, I think Amari Stoudemire was the NBA player at that time. Tom Sizemore was going to be the Eric Bogosian role. Um, Nope. <laughs> Don't put me down for <laughs> like, that. <laughs> that's a kind of... That's an interesting movie. It doesn't feel like a Safdie's movie like this one ended up being. I don't... Sasha Baron Cohen, it, like we're talking about kind of the balance between Adam Sandler, the comedic persona, and then his ability to go and do drama. Um, I don't think Sasha Baron Cohen has that figured out at all. Like, I, I just don't know how that works. There, there's maybe some crossover and things we're talking about that maybe some of the lines you could people be like, oh, it's funny. That's that's Borat, so it's funny. But yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, actually, some of the casting, like, I mean, Riley Keough, if there was to be like a name actress to play Julia, that is really good and it might be as good as it gets. Um, John David Washington as the man, he could be interesting too. Although I do like where that ends up with Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah, I, I agree. It still feels like a uh, kind of a jigsaw puzzle collection of people, and that, that feels like a movie that comes out in May and com comes and goes with 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
So <laughs> that's the vibe I'm getting from that room. 62% might be a little generous for some of that too. I don't know. Sasha Baron Cohen carrying it. I Maybe it works. If it works, it's a masterpiece. Um, it worked on this occasion and I think it's a masterpiece. Maybe it is on that one too, but I would have less confidence in it all coming together. I'm just wondering the about other... the Sizemore scenes where he just goes off and does his own thing. He, I can imagine him just being completely off book. Yeah, which, I mean, as as the kind of stories go from it, um, Eric Bogosian was crucial to kind of bring it together because most of his scenes, he was accompanied by two non-actors, um, essentially playing his henchmen, um, Phil and Nico, I believe are the characters' names. And there was that element of him like looking for where to come in with his lines and those guys not caring about it because they're not actors and they're just in the moment or in the scene. Tom Sizemore and that, that could really have just, you know, this shoe could have gone on a long time. Um, would be an interesting dynamic. The, the other parts of this that we know potentially, this did at one point go through a phase where it was rewritten for Kobe Bryant to be the NBA player. Um, which obviously us talking about this now, a few days after Kobe Bryant's passing, um, it seems particularly strange. I mean, imagine if it had turned out that way and this film was still kind of as big in the consciousness as it is right now, like that would that would mean a whole lot of different things for it. Um, but the film was completely rewritten for Kobe at that time. And I guess the line of it goes that it was kind of, you know, elixir of life quality to the gem that old Kobe Bryant um, was going to be fueled by this gem and he was going to kind of rediscover some of his, some of his former glories. Um, the, that one went as far as kind of rewriting a script and we should get this to Kobe, you should get this to Kobe to then Kobe saying, I want to direct. So it never actually even made it to him. Um, but definitely an interesting, an interesting idea. Although I don't know, I don't know how it would have translated. Again, Kevin Garnett, along with the superstition, I mean, what's he famous for? He's famous for his intensity. And Kobe is famous for his intensity, but it feels like in a different way. Um, It's a more silent workman-like approach to intensity, whereas K... Not necessarily inflicting the intensity on others in the way KG does. Right. KG wears the intensity on his sleeve a little bit more than Kobe. I also don't... Kobe a bit more brooding. Exactly. I also don't know about the magical realism is what that almost sounded like in terms of narrative with the gym. Whereas KG having it as sort of his, his lucky charm that he's convinced himself, even though we know he's crazy <laughs> kind of works a little bit better for me. Obviously I think Kobe could have played that well. He, he definitely could have played that role and it's believable from, from that sense. Also, I, I don't know the background, but I can imagine that would have been a logistical nightmare when you're supposed to be a uh, 47th Street uh, jewelry shop and Kobe Bryant's popping in and out on a regular basis. Uh, the only way that makes sense is if uh, the Lakers were playing the Knicks in the finals, and we all know that's never going to happen. The, the game, the game was a Knicks game. The game was a Knicks game. So he was. This is this is this is part of what I just kind of. Part of what frustrates me about, say, for example, okay, this movie got zero Academy Award nominations. There's multiple areas where it should have. But to me, the screenplay is just incredible uh, because they're they're constantly writing themselves into corners just by who they're casting. 
and they've got to work through that like by casting kevin garnett okay we've got to figure out kevin garnett here and at what point it makes sense and at what point it actually matters i mean there's an easy way kevin garnett played for the brooklyn nets uh, but that was past the point in his career where you can find a compelling okay this is what he thinks is happening with the gem because he wasn't doing a whole lot at that point so you've got to go okay what game could be fine what series could be fine if it's the playoffs uh, kobe had a big game late in his career at the garden i'm gonna say off the top of my head he scored 50 points i could be wrong on that but that's what that was going to be built around was kobe coming into the city he had a 50 point game and he will have had it with the oval so these are the kind of things that they had to work their way through from one version to the next that to me it just it blows my mind to think about it when you see how well it all came together but also to see how much thought and how they'd really worked out every time you know what it would be and um, because if it was Kobe Bryant and he was searching for you know his former glories well okay we can make that Howard story he's chasing his former glories in the form of his gambling um Joel Embiid is the one that I haven't mentioned yet that got closest until schedules didn't work because the movie was going to be filmed in season so you could not no longer have an active player but Joel Embiid from Cameroon um as the story goes the the whole the kind of main team of the film was going to be a reclamation um this was going to be about an African player wanting to get their hands on the gem that came from Africa and kind of get it back to its rightful owners. And for Howard, that would have been, you know, taking back what was his. So this kind of the progression of it, and even ultimately where it finishes that I'm, I'm genuinely blown away by the multitude of ways. It seems like they made this work on the page and kind of in a fantasy casting scenario, curveballs thrown at them. They have to figure it out. And they did in some way. And, that's when it all comes together and there's other elements we're going to talk about but where the authenticity of it it's it's crucial and it's got to feel real and it's all got to make sense it's also impressive and particularly so when it is kevin garnett and the elements of his personality and what he's into then also really translate to to howard and how he plays kg over the course of the movie yeah and that's what makes it so frustrating that it wasn't rewarded um in terms of awards now, however much that matters to the Safties or Adam Sandler, I don't know. But so many alternate realities, so many rewrites, so many almost was and never could be for it to end up into what I would consider to be a, a masterpiece in so many different genres wrapped up into one. And then for the Academy to just ignore it is is a little frustrating as someone that just likes movies and appreciates how much hard work went into making this what it was yeah and it is the detail i mean it's the detail of picking out those nba players and working their story into this story but that detail is just everywhere in the movie i mean to touch on the nba element of it for a moment because it's crucial to it and we both know the nba yeah i would if I don't know the NBA, I've got a problem. I would think I know it very well at this point. And the the details that are in there and the kind of just the one-liners and the conversations that you hear just about. I mean, this, this film is so well designed in terms of sound and the sound mix is really incredible. And there's just conversations happening everywhere all at once. But you're never too far away from hearing about, oh, you know, the Knicks need to keep Jeremy Lin. Again, very relevant to the time and, no, the Knicks won't do that because of Dolan. And then you, the, 
the joke that's made, I think, in the very first scene, KG comes to the door and Howard greets him with, like, the, did Amari have time on the clock? Which is, again, a reference to, like, a 2011 game that only Knicks fans are going to care about. Um, there's also the who would win in a fight, Tony Allen and I think it's Ben Wallace. Yeah, it's Rashid. It's Ben, it's ben yep. though, right? Uh, and it's like, oh, TA all day. Like, for me, seeing this movie in Ireland where no one else cares about the NBA, I, all of those lines, I'm just like, I'm laughing hysterically, particularly the Tony Allen one, uh, because the fact that that's in a movie to me is just incredible. And it, no one else knows. But that's speaking to the level of detail and that's speaking to just so often. Oh, what's the name of the movie? I'm not going to think of it now, am I? Trainwreck? Was that the Amy Schumer movie from like, it yep. was a train wreck. It wasn't called that. It was Bill Hader, Amy Schumer and LeBron James. Right. And that's where I'm going to because LeBron James is actually great in that movie. Uh, really, really good. The funniest part of the movie. It's a movie, though, that wants to use the NBA as a setting, kind of as some color for its world. And yet it never actually puts enough detail in that anyone who's familiar with that world can buy it. And I, I just don't know how, if you're making a movie, how that ever happens. If you want to if you want to bring something in, you've got to really get it right so that people are saying, yeah, that is reflective of that. Or I, I can relate to that or I can understand that I can see what I know in there. And I just think what this movie does with the NBA really speaks to just what it's doing in every other department. I don't know how authentic some of the some of the Diamond District elements are, but the NBA parts would give me a lot of confidence. The gambling parts give me a lot of confidence that they're really kind of paying attention to detail with that. And if you ever forget that it's 2012, all you have to do is pay attention to the scenes where they're showing actual gameplay because we see scores in the 80s of a fourth quarter of an NBA playoff game. We see Kevin Garnett jacking up mid-range jumpers and and posting up. <laughs> it is definitely reminds you that this was before the pace and space three-point revolution. We're just on the cusp of that. And uh, <laughs> the scores were were absolutely not just 2012 but eastern conference 2012 the scores in those games you're right with that we one. should just be happy for howard that he didn't bet the over in any of those games otherwise uh he would have been hurting there is one detail one nba detail i know of the film that isn't accurate i wonder if you know what it is interesting i don't think that i do but i probably should so um they're in a scene i actually really like and it's another scene that has one of these kind of nods and winks from the Safties where it's clear they're playing with we know who Adam Sandler is you know who he is and we know how to use him um, he and Damani he's looking for the gem back from KG KG has the gem KG's at practice so he gets in the car with Damani and they go to Philadelphia to practice because the Celtics are in a series with the Philadelphia 76ers and they roll up at the Philadelphia 76ers practice facility and there is there is the most, you know, 90s, mid-90s, early 2000s Adam Sandler comedy moment in the film, which is when he gets in, he pokes a ball loose from like a security guard and he goes down and he lays up the ball and kind of comes back celebrating. And you're like, this is this is Adam Sandler. To which at that point, Lakeith Sanfield's Damani replies, Yo, you got to calm your happy ass down. Which I really liked. But in that scene, they are at the Philadelphia 76ers practice, it looks like, 
or certainly they're not something that is a replica of it, but it has their current branding, not the branding of 2012, because the Sixers have gone undergone a rebrand since then. Ooh, that's tough. I didn't notice that, and I've been to Wells Fargo Center within the last month, so shame on me. I'm I'm surprised that the the Safties just wouldn't have. Maybe that was just a stretch too far to be like we need to get a what looks like a practice facility and paint the old logo on the walls. Um, maybe that was the point where it's like no, we've got we've got the place. It works. Let's just do it. Um, but we'll move on from that because I'm sure literally ninety nine percent of people who watch it won't have noticed and probably a hundred percent won't care. So. That's enough of that particular detour, but just one one note, one detail that wasn't quite spot on. I want to um, transition over to some of our favorite scenes or some of the most effective scenes in the movie. And one of these does tie into one other element, which I just think, again, it just kind of gives a real sense of life to it. And that is The weekend. Um, the weekend is in this movie for probably actual screen time, like... 90 seconds to two minutes that, seem that right? sounds about right i've i've got a take lock and locked and loaded when you're ready so continue oh i'm excited for this uh, no i just think it, again it, it makes sense i actually i thought does this make sense time wise that was another thing i checked out i was like that to me doesn't seem like it makes sense but it, it actually does work out and i'm sure to people who are you know in clubs in New York in 2012, those kind of cool people, they knew who The weekend was then. Um, but that sequence, visually, is incredible. Um, the weekend very helpfully, for you know the visuals of the film, insists that he won't start his performance in the club until the black light is turned on. So we get this kind of neon-lit atmosphere where you've got some of the best shots of Sandler's face. You've got Julia positioned in the background of the frame in this jumpsuit of some sort it's it's white and it just it makes her just pop out of the frame from the distance so straight away we can see that's who it is Damani's wearing an orange hoodie that jumps out I just find that whole sequence to be really arresting the weekend's performance the song works well for me maybe it doesn't for someone else we'll find out in a second and I just think visually it's incredible that's one that the first time I saw the movie it was just a scene, but as I've watched it a few times since, I'm like, I really, really like this scene. It just captures some kind of energy from the movie. And I think the argument where they come out of the club straight after that, I mean, that's a, a really kind of crucial moment of it. But it's also one of the sequences. So much of this movie was shot on long lens in New York. So you've got real people just kind of going around, going about their business. And all of a sudden... Adam Sandler has come out of a club wearing like a bright pink shirt and he's like shouting at some woman who's standing in front of his cab. It's the scene where you get some people and you can see in the background they're looking and they're like, oh my God, what what is going on here? So it just kind of, it has so much of the energy of the movie and I think the things that go together that it's it really works for me. But I'm excited to hear whatever oh, you Oh, I agree with everything you just you just said. The way that the color pops and contrast in that scene is is amazing. Uh, the weekend's whole vibe works perfectly for the setting that they're in, but I gotta just say, it works perfectly in this movie. But I just I hate the weekend so much, Adam. I hate him so much, and that's why it works so well. <laughs> he he reminds me of like sleazy, whiny Drake. That's the vibe that I get from the weekend. That is what he is. I mean, that's 
I, my first contact with the weekend would almost certainly have been when he like featured on Drake. And song. I know they're both Canadian, so I'm lazy with that comparison. But that's how he comes across, and from his public re- reputation, and if you just listen to the lyrics of his songs, that's spot on. So that's why it works perfectly for this movie, especially in a situation where he's wedged in between, literally and figuratively, uh, Howard and Julia for a time, and. That whole vibe of the guy that won't stop hitting on your sister at Panera Bread, even though she's not interested, that he gives across the whole time, is it's just great because it makes your skin crawl. Uh, so that being said, completely agree about that scene. It's uh, that 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 would be on there. Well, it wouldn't be on the Oscar reel, but it would in terms of the cinematography or something like that, it would be on that Oscar reel. But yeah, so I had to unleash my my dirtbag the weekend take. He, he's probably a lovely person, but he does not come across that way in this movie, and nor should he. I've no such strong feelings. Um, I I wouldn't say I'm a fan because I haven't listened enough, but I, I do I do quite like what I have heard over the years. But you've got strong feelings. I respect that. Um, we'll go through a few more. Any scenes to you that jump out that you'd want to kind of flag up or talk about? I mean, the ending is probably one for both of us, or kind of the. I guess the final 20 minutes of the movie, we might get to that, but is there anything else you could think of before that you found particularly entertaining? So I guess the way you said that, that the entire 20 minutes of the end would, would stack up there, but we'll talk about the end at some point, the transaction scene where Howard gets to give his, this is how I win speech. probably is a part of that 20 minutes. I'll also say the scene. No, no, that's if you want. If you want to go with that one, you can. I think that's really before it. That's before it. That's the moment where it kicks up into gear. Oh, for like sure. Into not that it's not that it's not already like in fifth gear, but it finds an extra gear at that point for tension and everything. And then you get the last twenty minutes. To me, absolutely. I think that's the best scene in the movie to me. But the scene that I'm thinking of is a callback to something you said about the softness of his voice and the way he plays with that. A, a scene that really highlights the internal struggle that Howard's having and also the fickle nature of his existence is when he's trying to spur the moment, win back his wife at, at mm-hmm. Passover dinner. And he's telling her that, you know, Julia meant nothing and that he, he wants to get back where they're, let's all forget about the past. You know, I'm, I'm in it now. I'm good to go. That's all done. I'm changed. And we know full well while he's doing that, he's not changed. He's upset because of the situation that happened at the club the night before. He's just emotionally exhausted by everything that's going on and all the trouble that he's caused. And rather than in a typical cinematic fashion, her take him back, she just flatly and uh, quite harshly rejects him and tells him that she resents him and hates him completely and can't stand to be in the same room with him. And so that's a little more, a a, a little more subtle (laughs) scene than, than the ending, but one that sums up who Howard is just as much. That's one that I think played great in the theater. Anytime I saw it, because he does his kind of, he goes off in a speech and he, that is maybe at his most gentle, his most sing song his most quiet. And there is this, just perfect pause where he sits there and his his face his facial expression just changes slightly and he kind of he basically puts on like a sad puppy face and at that point anytime i saw it with a crowd the laugh started and then 
Dina comes out with, I don't want to see that stupid face ever again, which is which is kind of perfect in it. That is the scene I alluded to earlier that it is essentially, you know, beat for beat, it's a replica of the scene with Leslie Mann and Funny People right up until the point where in Funny People, you know, there's a much more positive result for Adam Sandler than he gets in this one. Um, my favorite scene of the movie is it's not even a contest. Um, it comes at the point where were you first? Oh, not when you first. There's there's so many. The movie's just frantic and like your blood pressure is up from early on. But this is one where everything starts to happen at once. You know, I could give two instances for this. I'm really going to say is I love the scenes when Howard is back in his office because there's two times. One, when um, he gets a phone call from the doctor um which is a callback to the opening scene of the movie, which to me seemed like a Chekhov's gun sort of thing, except for the fact that we actually get a Chekhov's gun later. Um, but the movie starts with a sequence in Ethiopia that then cuts into, you know, this kind of, I don't know, astral look at the inside of the gem. It's kind of just this kind of, this really trippy sequence that then morphs into uh, the insides of Howard as he's undergoing a colonoscopy and it comes out into the room and he's under sedation and the doctor's performing this. And right away, that's the thing. I don't know if this was the case for you. Um, I mean, it is left long enough that you almost forget it and it's brought back when things are really going wrong. And then when the phone rings, you hear it, it's like, oh my God, is he going to, is he, is he going to be told now he has cancer? But to me, I was waiting for that shoot to drop. I was like, that has to be what they're doing here. Where really it was actually a decoy where they use something like that they planted earlier later on in a couple of cases. Oh yeah, I agree. I was waiting for that the entire time as well. And then when that phone rings, you think here's, here's the real shoe that's going to drop. We've seen Howard go through all this. We've seen him get thrown in the back of a trunk. Now we're going to find out he's got two weeks to live or something like that. And what's Mm -hmm. so perfect about that scene as well is the chaos that's going on around him while he's talking to the doctor. And the doctor is so nonplussed about, everything that's happening like everyone that he calls <laughs> well he's he's not at the start because the, the that's like the money comes in and the money wants his rolexes back which of course are not there because the, howard doesn't hang on to anything he's constantly saying okay what can i pawn what can i use what can i who what can i lend to whom um to kind of just get an extra bit of money or to kind of i don't know rob peter to pay paul as the saying goes so with that You've got the tension ratcheting up of that. You've got the doctor on the phone. He takes on speaker. He then he shouts "fuck you" at Donnie, and the doctor's like, "Howard, you, you me? Uh, no, no, not you." And it is just like Howard is having the two conversations as if this is not unusual to anyone until the point where the man he, uh does he put like Gatorade or Red Bull? It's something like that. Something into the to fish harm tank. the fish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which leads to Howard scrambling around. That's that's one instance. But my favorite scene takes place back there, and it is really, again, I touched on earlier, but when he's at his lowest ebb, where he's bruised and beaten, and um, it's after the auction, he's just being thrown in a fountain, and he comes back to the office. He doesn't want Julia to see him. At that point, they fall now. She comes into the office because someone has a sweatsuit she thinks will look really well on him. Um, and this is one of these points where again I seeing this I wanted to laugh I wanted to laugh immediately and I think if you've got Adam Sandler in your movie you've got to understand that's going to be the audience's impulse because when he's crying then you've got to lean into that eventually you've got to make it into that 
And this is the sequence where he's like, oh, I just, you know, I nothing's got, nothing will go right for me. And Julia decides, oh, well, you know, it might cheer you up. Unzip my skirts to reveal she's got his name tattooed on her backside, which is hilarious. It is one of the funniest sequences. His reaction is one of the funniest things I've ever seen Adam Sandler do. The way his voice goes again, we're talking about his voice, but the way he just kind of recoils and it's, oh, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And then like we can never be buried together now. These kind of things are just, it, it's an incredible scene. And it's right at that point then that the guy who uh, he has pawned some fake Rolexes off to, which is the reason why they weren't there earlier, uh, he comes to the door and we get this fucking guy, which is like, it is one of the top three memes to have emerged from this movie. I will likely only gather even more steam uh, once it's on Netflix. So that for me, it's just a hysterically funny scene. I think I can laugh at that scene from now until the end of time. It's Sandler doing really great serious acting but also being able to just flip that switch and know i need to i need to keep the edge here and this scene is going to turn into a really comedic one too and it's also a scene where he then gets a phone call from kevin garnett and kevin garnett still wants to buy the gem and then the whole movie pivots again to a more optimistic note and he's back on his feet there's a lot going on there and it's all just kind of paying off um so that's one i particularly like it makes a ton of sense that even though the scenes that have gotten the most publicity on the internet, you know, that this is how I win meme, the I disagree when he's having the conversation with the bookie played by Mike Francesa in the restaurant. It makes sense that we would come out of the gate with uh, two low-key hipster choices for our favorite scenes. So we're keeping it on brand already in episode two. I don't think mine is hipster. I think think most people see the movie. That's going to be one of their favorite scenes. Ass tattoos, ass tattoos are popular. You've only seen it once. I've seen it multiple times. Is that a like that's a scene that does stand out to you, right? That is one of the funnier scenes in the movie. Oh yeah, specifically the pivot into we can't be buried together. I was cackling. That was that. Oh, it's, beautiful that's, transition. There are some. We'll touch on this a little bit later. There are some of the best kind of acerbic Jewish kind of comedic lines in this movie. And um, the other one about Arno at uh, a Pesach when uh, Gooey, I believe, is Judd Hirsch's character, uh, <laughs> says that um, he wished him a happy holidays, and it's like having an intruder in my own home, which is again just hilarious. There's so many really, really sharp and funny lines like that that you feel like this could just as easily be, you know, in a curb episode. You know, if Larry David sees this, he's gonna be like, "How did I not have that line before?" Um, which he actually, there was this full episode of Curb now, I think about it, about uh, not being able to be buried because of tattoos. Uh, that's a story for another day. I want to do one other thing before we get to the ending, because I think this feeds into it. So we've made mention of, I guess, just how anxiety-inducing and um, just how basically crazy this movie is, how relentless it is in kind of... I don't know, coming down, you're like a ton of bricks. Like, you're really feeling it. You're really feeling the pressure he's under. You're living through the situations he's going through. So I just want to talk a little bit more about that tension. Have you, or do you have an example of another movie that's made you feel that way? So I struggled with this, as you know, because I gave you a few... I'm not... No, I'm not... That's... uh, We're going to get something else later, specifically for... 
for further viewing, we're going to recommend a couple of things for people like this. But I'm just trying to think. For me, I, I don't think I'm not a. What's the best way to put this? I'm not a performative cinema goer, right? You know, there are some people who go to a movie and they are loud reactors. <laughs> um, I, I live with that. That is yes. not me. Really? Okay. Well, that is not me. And this is a movie where there are multiple things. The ending is certainly one where I. I basically gasped out loud. Um, but there are also points, the moment of realization in the scene just before he says, this is how I win, where he's like, fuck it, let's bet on it. I actually, at that moment, oh no. You know, there's there's just a certain kind of, maybe it's the, maybe it's the content, maybe it's the NBA element and maybe it's the betting element of someone who, who is more than familiar with betting that I'm betting on sports that made me kind of connect to that. But for me, I I've never had a film that's made me kind of cringe in my seat, kind of slap my forehead, groan aloud like this one has. And I think it's really interesting because I, I don't even know how easy it would be to recreate that. I think that's a real achievement to get something that just creates this kind of oppressive tension in your audience. In terms of stressfulness in a movie theater, the only thing that compares for me is Mad Max Fury Road, but they're completely different in the way that they mm. achieve this. Yeah, but there there is the there is the similar like <laughs> the no break of it. You know, you're not really getting much respite at all. There are a couple of moments in Uncle Gems compared to uh Mad Max Fury Road, but if you want to imagine sure you can see the kind of the relentless kind of going down that road in mad max fury road and the non-stop abrasive action of it that there is something comparable for sure there's one specific basketball game i remember watching when i was a sophomore in college i this is gonna be weird but it's also the only other time i've experienced this sensation nc state was playing at duke uh, a very good Duke team that was better than them. NC State jumps out to a 20-point first-half lead, blows the game in the second half, and it's a 9 p.m. start. I have a 6 a.m. flight the next day, and I couldn't get to sleep because my ears were hot with rage. My ears were literally hot with rage. And I got almost the same sensation of like the stressed-out, hot ears, just like sweating feeling from uncut gyms. But... You know, I had no vested interest in a basketball game, so it's a little bit different, but I got the same physical reaction from it. So very strange that I have that memory burned in my brain, but that's the uncut gems game from now from henceforth. That's I'm glad you've got a parallel. I mean, if I was to think of other non movie times, uh, I could think of times where, you know, I may have had the last leg of a parlay bet, Andrew, and it may have been an NBA game late, and it's like it brings out that feeling. So there's a lot that, you know, I was able to uh, fully kind of relate to in this movie. I think one of the key things, something we haven't talked about so far, which is kind of impressive, I think, um, and negligent on our part that we haven't mentioned in any way so far that's key to driving this is the score from Daniel Patton. I don't know if I fully... You hear it, you feel it, you know it's driving the story along, you know it is kind of pushing your buttons when you watch it the first time. But I don't think I fully notice just how great this score is and how nuanced it is until multiple watches after the fact because not only does it kind of kind of really bring up the percussive elements and really kind of 
cut off your oxygen, uh, essentially, at some of the most tense moments in the movie. But when it opens up, it's really quite beautiful, too. And all of these moments of optimism and hope. And I mean, it is a roller coaster ride of a movie. There are four or five points where it's all going to be fine. Or Herod's going to figure this out. And this is very much his life and how he lives it. And he wins a bet or he's got a new scheme or things are working with Julie or whatever it may be. Even when the score opens up in those moments and how it comes out of them is just really masterfully kind of constructed and then married with the material, uh, which I don't know. I can't think of many scores like this that weren't in Safdie Brothers films. I mean, this is very reminiscent of the score that Daniel Patton did for Good Time. And it's even, I mean, you can compare it to some of the Safdie Brothers' previous works. Uh, I can, Heaven Knows What has a score that has a similar kind of purpose, it feels like, and similar kinetic energy at times in the movie. So it's something they're clearly very good at doing and collaborating with composers to get that kind of effect. But this is a really, really immensely impressive score that's fundamental to everything that the movie needs the audience to uh, feel the first time you watch it it's more jarring than anything because he's mostly you know you never heard anything like it before uh it's a dreamscape if things look like they're gonna work out for him it's a hellscape when things are turning up to 11 so to speak it reminds me of the score from the horror movie it follows if it had like six cups of coffee and it really does set the tone the entire way through and without it it's just not as effective in terms of building the tension. It's cliche to say it, but it's almost like another character. Absolutely. I think it, that is often a cliche, but I think there's certainly some truth to it in this case. Um, another element that's just core to making all this work is the editing. This film is incredibly well edited. Um, this is really where it probably should have got an Oscar nomination. I'm surprised it didn't. And was edited by Benny Safdie along with Ronald Bronstein, who... As uh, a frequent collaborator of the Safties and edited a good time with Benny as well. So um, some of them have worked it for quite some time. But making all of the pieces fit, not just visually, and I mean, there are some really interesting decisions made with the edits. And Darius Kanji's cinematography is great, so they have a lot to work with. I mean, just a really well-shot movie. Um, but the overall construction of this movie, so not just their editing, but also sound editing and sound mixing which you talked about earlier i mean the safties have uh, relayed the story that they had over 60 pages of adr to be recorded for this which generally you get a one or two page adr just for any lines that weren't caught in filming but in their case they had written entire other stories you know that were in the movie that no one's ever really gonna hear unless you really sat down and tried to zoom in and what are the other conversations going around in the shop at the time or what's being said here at this particular dinner, these kind of things. But that kind of layering effect, again, adds to just the world. It, it builds out and fully fleshes out the Diamond District, but also the chaos of Howard's life and his mind at that point too. Um, where to get all of that together, first of all, in a sense that's hourly cohesive, but then also that's visually cohesive. And beyond that, it's creative. Um, there's some really bold choices made at a couple of moments um so as we come close to wrapping up here i guess we better get to that kind of chunk of the movie this is a the one thing i guess we haven't touched this is a relatively long movie it's two hours 15 minutes and it 
it feels that way, but then again, it doesn't. Exactly what I was going to say. If It feels that way because you are fatigued because of how tense it is by the time it gets laid into the movie. But it's not like you're checking your watch and feeling like it's dragging in any way because it's not. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, It's it's really just it, it's tight because it, it, it moves along. It's well paced, but you're just so damn stressed out the, <laughs> the whole time that when it builds to the, the last 20 minutes where everything really comes to a head, you feel like that ending should be a little bit more abrupt. But the the final scene as or the scenes as we're watching the uh, parlays play out, it's really like a, an entire sequence in and of itself. And it feels like a, and an additional episode to the movie we just watched almost. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's a couple of things I really appreciate with it. And that's all of the things that they bring about, they've done the work for. Um, like, I mean, there is, is twist the right word for how this movie ends? There's a, there's a shock. It's, it's not a twist as much as it's a shock, right? There's a, a jolting end to this movie. Um, right. Gut punch. Absolutely. And it's, it's certainly earned. And even if it's one that doesn't give the audience what they want at the time, it's what makes sense for the story. And it also makes what, makes all sense for the teams of the movie i mean and um, they say something pretty definitive about gambling and about this kind of addiction with the way the movie ends up that to me is you know it's it's truthful and it's it's worth saying it would have been inauthentic to kind of make howard the winner you know and also he does a lot of things that aren't quite great and they know they've built a character that a lot of people really like but they also know he doesn't deserve to win. And yet they still convince the audience leading up to that point that you're going to get the happy ending. Oh, you, you think yeah. he's won. You think he's won. I mean, I am i don't get carried away watching a movie like I did watching this for the first time where like I'll be where when he won that bet and it's played out that way where like I was beaming ear to ear and now all of a sudden the rug's pulled from under you. You know, that's not something that would happen to me. I'd probably be more guarded, but it, it works that well that I was like, yeah, he's won. Um, but there, there's a few elements of that that are really interesting to me. First of all, the vestibule. I mean, that's set up from early in the movie. We have the problems with, you know, opening the door, closing the door. And again, in another movie, and if I wasn't as compelled at other points, I may have figured out at some point, oh, that could come in useful. But it didn't Chekhov's happen. vestibule. Right. And that's, this is, this is one of multiple Chekhov's. Um, I, it didn't happen for me. For you? Nope. I just thought they were playing the, uh, the broken man trap for laughs. Did not think twice about it coming back into play and playing a major role. So, again, the work is done and the work is done really effectively in a scene that just seems like to perfectly fit with just everything that's going on, the chaos of it when it happens the first time when it's KG who's stuck in there and it's like he's got the opal and the herd needs the opal out. It, it's working for what it needs to work for at that point in the movie and it's also setting up what happens later which is just you know it is perfect it is perfectly written do you remember or did you notice when howard this is the first bet the bet is cancelled on him so when he returns home and dina is watching the bachelor i think you may be more of an authority on that than me i've given up that pastime I think it was a bachelor. From what I know, it looked like some. If it wasn't actually that, it was something that was like that, or it's designed to look like that. He asks her to flip the channel over to the game, 
there's a commercial on. Do you know what the commercial is? I don't. It's a commercial for the Mohegan Sun Casino, um, which is ultimately where, I mean, the climax of the movie occurs, where Julia is sent uh, in the helicopter to go and place the bet on and where we've kind of got alternate tracks of the kind of the ultimate drama in the movie playing out. So again, kind of, I like that's the kind of little detail that can actually become grown worthy on multiple rewatches because you're like, oh, okay, but it's the kind of detail I just love. I just love when filmmakers play around with their movie and play around with the audience like that. And everything is there if you want to find it. And this isn't that kind of movie. No one's going to come out of this and be like, I need to go back and rewatch to find like the Easter eggs. I really see the work that's put in, but it's, it's all there. The other element again, that worked for me. So Phil, I think I always forget his name. Yes, Phil. So the henchman played by a non-actor by the name of Keith William Richards, who has basically been violent throughout. And when they're first trapped in the vestibule, he pulls a gun. First time we see a gun in the movie. Um, and yeah, Chekhov's gun, you know, the gun has to go off once we've seen it. All of that considered the just the sheer emotion of the bet coming true and Howard's celebration and you can see that Arno is just like okay I'm gonna get my money and I'm fine with this what a what a weird bizarre but happy ending for all of this by the time the gun is pulled and Howard is shot right between the eyes I'd completely forgotten about the gun as had I okay at, at that at that time the nerves are completely tied to what's going to happen if he doesn't win Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, in, in the mind of the audience, it's if he wins this bet, he's he's perfect. He can pay off his debts. He and Julia can have uh, enough money to, you know, start their new life together. He can definitely pay off whatever kind of alimony he's going to owe to Dina for his years of uh, infidelity and just being a shitty husband. We don't I don't consider that this isn't going to work out because that's what the buildup leads to. And then we have this huge cathartic celebratory moment. And then the rug is just completely ripped out from under us. Which I, I love it so much. And I love it because it gave the cathartic moment, like in the most maximal way possible too. Um, like there are, there are plenty of endings throughout film history where you think you're going to get the happy ending, but really you don't get to see the happy ending and the rugs pulled out from under you. But in this case, it lets it happen. I mean, you can just, you could just pause this film two minutes early, you know, two minutes before the actual end. And you can take home a completely different version of this movie if you want. And because it gives you that ending, it gives you everything's going to work out, but it is more interesting. The fact that it doesn't, and it, it is more, it's more true to life. Look, given given what his character has got into and given just how long he seems to be kind of getting by on one thing after the other. I mean, the other thing is, if you start to tot up just how much money he owes and how it's continuing to spiral as this movie goes on, like, that is the thing. They're pointing to sooner or later the look is going to run out. Because even every time like he has a small win or he manages to get something upon that to put this onto that, like even at the end of the movie, 
or even when he's celebrating. Let's let's take it back to just before um that part of the story kicks off. So before KG arrives actually buy the opal, when he gets the phone call that KG is gonna buy it, and he's celebrating. KG says he's gonna give him 180 grand because Damani was getting a commission. And at this point, Howard has had to get Gooey to buy it at auction for 200 grand. And he has told him he's going to pay him interest on that. So it's like, he's also 40 grand in the hole on this. And he's celebrating as if it's a win. And it's it's like when you really just kind of, all the different things carrying over. So it's every time, that's not even taking into account, you know, all these times he's consistently late back to the pawn shop and he's losing more on this. And the, it's just, it's relentless. It never stops piling up. It's very, very stressful. Uh, even from the financial perspective, if you pay any attention to the amounts and how they're being processed. So it only seems fitting like for that to be where it ends. And to end it like that is particularly particularly clever um i'm not gonna do the kind of thing that maybe some people listening would like us to do but i i just know you and i aren't interested in which is like the what what do we think happens after the movie what what happens julia has the money where does that go from there to me i i couldn't care less i think you're probably in agreement we're generally on endings we're we're cool with not knowing certain things yeah i like to be told a complete story and then whatever happens after that uh you know is up for other people to imagine but i will not be thinking about it (laughs) sure and if she does keep the money there's probably a great story in what julia would do with the money and what her life becomes out of that um but that's not really for us so overall thoughts to me this is just from start to finish an incredible incredible movie in a great year for film, this is up there with the very best movies. We'll be talking about some of the others in the weeks ahead, I've no doubt. But this is right up there at the pinnacle. And doesn't really put a foot wrong. I mean, some of the only complaints I've seen is, you know, he's not a likable character. Okay, I guess anyone who says that, he's not a likable character. The filmmakers know that, the movie knows that. I know that watching it, but it's never something I feel the need to go to a movie and have um, good and bad kind of divided for me in black and white and to know that I'm on the side of good. I don't know how many movies where that ever happens. Not really good for drama. That seems to be the one complaint that goes around is he was just too unlikable. I couldn't get past it. Even with that, though, I struggle with that because there are countless moments in the movie where you can see how much, for example... He cares for his family. He loves his children. He loves his wife. It doesn't mean that he's not going to deceive them over and over again. It doesn't mean that, you know, really what he's lost and what he's lost in in terms of his addiction isn't going to continue to to mean that he'll end up hurting them. But he's not a he's not a malicious character to me. And that's where everything we talked about Sandler comes into play, where, yes, he is this unlikable character doing despicable things. But while you're watching it, you're not thinking about that necessarily. You're cringing at the things that he's doing. You're saying, oh, God, Howard, not not this, not that. But you're still rooting for him in the end. So I think even on a rewatch, I mean, you you would know better than me that that's going to come across. And what I'll say about my feelings on this movie, I haven't seen it in everything that you've seen during this year i think at some point as you know as i get caught up we'll probably 
dig into our movies of 2019 or at least the Oscar movies heading into the Oscars, it would probably be my second favorite movie of 2019. I won't say what the top one is. Just don't in- don't even look. Don't even pin yourself a second. You've got some stuff to see. Maybe, That's true. Maybe you'll rewatch this. It'll jump up. It'll go down. It's in. It's amongst your favorite movies, much like it is for me, though. Okay, our last thing. We like this movie. If those listening like this movie, if we were to recommend two movies each, kind of recommended further viewing, um, taking whatever, whether it's thematic or the energy of the movie, whatever it might be, um, I have two picks. Do you have two picks, Andrew? I've got one that I feel good about and one that I told you that I can speak uh, just, to. Let's, but... let's start. We'll, we'll work through it. Let's start with your pick that you're feeling good about then. Perfect. All right. So the sense of stress and anxiety and cringiness that Uncut Gems made me feel. The feeling reminded me of the movie You Were Never Really Here, which was a Lynn Ramsey directed movie from 2017 starring Joaquin Phoenix. It's essentially about a a hired gun that helps rescued, uh, rescue sex trafficked girls. And it dives into a seedy, dark world. Uh, and I think New York or Los Angeles, I can't remember exactly New what York, the setting. New York, yeah. Yeah, it's, New York. It's very much modern taxi driver. Yeah, absolutely. And it is it is the good version of Joker. Yeah, it's we we should just put that I shouldn't uh, be up. saying things like that. Yeah, I'm giving away my thoughts on things for future episodes. We should just put that up for the 20 best best uh movie picture for this year and just ignore the Joker's in there and just say that Joaquin Phoenix is winning best actor for that. That's what we should say. But yeah, so that was probably a little scene movie uh, when it came out. I, I don't know that it made a ton of money. Uh, it's on Netflix, though. Yeah, it is uh, on Netflix. I think it's, if you don't have Netflix, it's also on Amazon, which is how I saw it about a year ago. And highly recommend it. It's an uncomfortable watch, but it's entertaining. And uh, the ending hits hard in a different way than Uncut Gems did. So it's well worth the watch. It's also got a great score by Radiohead's uh, Johnny Greenwood that works very much in the same way that Daniela Patton's score works for Uncle Gems. And some similar kind of vibes in terms of what they're doing with synthesizers too. So definitely can see some commonalities there. Um, do you want to do your second one or will I go at one and we'll alternate? Uh, I can I can knock this one out quickly as well. The other one I picked... Yeah, you're... you're... Trying to doubt this one and underplay it to begin with. I don't want this. I want you to wholeheartedly convince me. What's why should this second movie, Andrew, be one that people like Uncle Gems seek out if they haven't seen already? Adam, I was told by a coworker this week that I'm charmingly neurotic, so that would make sense that I'm trying to downplay <laughs> uh, my pick here. This one is a movie you probably saw, 2017's war film Dunkirk, directed by Christopher Nolan. The reason that I chose Dunturk was just because of how big of a role sound plays in your experience watching the movie, particularly if you've seen it in a theater. So hopefully you've got a giant room and a projector screen where you watch movies at home so you can have a similar experience. But yeah, the way sound plays a role in the movie and also it's another movie that keeps you on the edge of your seat. So more 
more in the sense of the the Tom Hardy scenes or the scenes on the Bulge, I think it's called, uh, would have this kind of effect. Not so much the quiet scenes on the boat with Mark Rylance, but you know, Adam, I told you I was struggling with it, but I stand by it as flawed as my pick may be in my neuroses. I I can see it. I can see it. I, I don't. It's not as seamless as your first one, so your your feeling on that is right. But I can see it. I can see how it works, and it certainly has a certain kind of intensity to it. And well. I haven't seen nineteen seventeen, but maybe this is me also projecting another movie into this year's Oscar race that I feel like should have gotten more love at the time. Maybe that's what I'm doing as well. But like I said, need to see 1917. I won't comment on that just yet, then. Um, okay, my two movies. Firstly, A Serious Man. The Convert is a Serious Man, I think, is in many ways a movie that you could almost like fold over on top of this one and have very similar straight lines. It's obviously a movie that's just as kind of dominated by its Jewishness. Um, certainly more so in a lot of ways it is deeply rooted in Jewish mysticism and kind of Jewish folk legend Um, but in its more grounded moments at its essence it's a story of a man who is just trying to navigate his way through the world where everything is going against him where nothing is going his way and there are even similarities to the you know the dread of waiting for a phone call from a doctor to find out if you've got cancer between these two movies um now the scale of you know just how poorly the ending or you know i won't i won't even touch that because i'm recommending some that some people may not have seen um different again as i think as you mentioned for the ending hits some similar notes but on in different ways on different scales um yeah i just think it's a movie that if you if you like uncle gems you'll you'll see a lot of the kind of same story beats um and it's also just a hilariously funny movie and i think it's got some of that same sharp wit um some of the lines that we mentioned earlier again could easily be in a serious map it's a movie we talked about in a previous life and one we may talk about down the line so i agree with adam yeah i think we did i don't even remember that um there's a good chance we'll end up talking about a serious man again at some point Uh, i love it it's it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, the second movie I've picked um, is a movie that fittingly, for a lot of reasons with this one, I mean, um, given we've mentioned Punch Drunk Love a few times, it is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature. It's Heart 8. Um, a movie that is certainly gambling-centric. Um, a movie that not quite the central character but a very major character um played by an actor who is very well known for his comedic ability but is an incredible dramatic actor in this case john c Riley, as opposed to sandler in this case um and what i think makes this interesting is it does hit on some similar beats again but it is anchored by an energy I guess not just by an energy, by a performance too that is the complete polar opposite, really, of what you've got with Sandler and you've got with Uncle Gems. You've got Philip Baker Hall as this just kind of very quiet and efficient character who just kind of glides his way through scenes. 
um where it seems authentic where where sandler may be like you know the duck who's paddling at 100 miles per hour under the water this this is a character who very much you can imagine is just slowly and calmly gliding regardless of what's going on around him for the most part um but another movie from just uh, maybe the greatest filmmaker of his generation um in paul thomas anderson's case but some similar themes some connections to this movie and almost the inverse in a lot of ways too and i mean you can see even some julian guinapaltro's character it it works out in a very interesting way um that i think it would be pretty rewarding if you finish up uncle gems and you were to fire up part eight soon after um i think it would feel like a pretty a pretty natural and a pretty interesting double feature one I've never seen, so I'll have to add it to it to an uncut gems double feature night at some point. I hope you do. It's worth seeing. I mean, just like any Paul Thomas Anderson film, it's undoubtedly his least seen movie, um, but one I would recommend. Okay, so that does it for this conversation about uncut gems. Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job. There are a few things that I probably would like to get to, but we've gone on long enough, right, Andrew? <laughs> Yeah, I think I need a nap. Yeah, me too. Um, So we will be back next week with a new episode. As promised, we are going to keep in the loop at the end of each episode so that if you do want to listen, you can basically get your homework done ahead of time, um, like Andrew (laughs) most weeks. And you can know what exactly you've got to go and view to listen to our next episode. So in our next episode, we're going to continue a team of kind of very buzzy movies at the moment one that's even buzzier than uncle gems considering where it's at coming towards the academy awards and that is parasite and we're gonna dive deep into parasite but we'll also probably touch a little bit more on some of bong joon ho's other films from his career we won't go into spoiler territory and anything else but if you can see the host or memories of murder or mother or akia or snowpiercer um whatever whatever you can see i'll I've recently watched all of his movies, so we can we can just kind of touch on all of them and give something of a crash course to Bong Joon-ho and a deeper dive into Parasite. So that's for next week. You all set for that, Andrew? You excited? I'm ripping and raring to go, as they say, <laughs> down here in the swamp. Excellent. Okay. Um, most importantly, if you're listening to this, if you just stumbled across it one way or another, make sure you subscribe to us through whatever podcast platform you listen to we are everywhere andrew we are we are in the walls there's no getting rid of us at this point so wherever you list your podcasts go search captured and celluloid and you can hit subscribe there you'll get every episode in the future um you can also like us on facebook at captured and celluloid um follow us on twitter captured on cell and we do have a website too where you'll find all of our episodes as they go up as well as blog posts um, and some articles throughout the year check in there that is capturedandcellulite.com until the next time thanks all of you for listening Andrew thank you take care Adam <laughs>